everyone, this is Cobain. So today we're going to finish our discussion of the history of uh, uh, of the prophetic thread which leads down to the union of Hellenistic philosophy and Hebrew prophecy in the church. And I'm going to complete my argument that this is not only uh, warranted by the principle of despoiling the Egyptians and taking their culture, devoting it to the sanctuary, but actually is explicitly anticipated in a prophetic thread that begins in Noah a tent of Shem in which Japheth will be enlarged and in which he will dwell. And that goes down to Paul who builds the tent, reconciles Jews and Greeks and does all of that. Um, so uh, I actually made, there's another 45 minute discussion that it just went over too much of the same stuff that I did in my last one, but there's still a fair bit of other stuff that I didn't talk about in my last video. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to upload that as an exclusive patron only video because there is a lot of information there that I haven't talked about in those other videos but I didn't want to just make part two kind of a uh, disorganized rehash of part one with lots of other stuff kind of sprinkled throughout so uh, on the patreon thing if you sign up for tiers one or two on patreon on patreon or youtube memberships you get access to exclusive content i do like to keep as much as possible available for free to a general audience as i can uh, though there are select uh, examples of exclusive content as uh, today, for example. Uh, tier 3 on both YouTube and Patreon, though on YouTube it's slightly more expensive because YouTube takes a higher cut uh, of your contribution, but it's available if you prefer that platform, which some people do. Um, uh, tier 3 guarantees you at least an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion over Zoom or the phone or whatever you'd like uh, per month on whatever topic you'd like to speak about with me. Um, as long as I have something to say, um, I will say it in that one-on-one -on -one setting and i can also record the conversations and send it to you if you find that useful so uh, no worries if you just want to sign up for one or two months and then uh unsubscribe i'm not going to hold that against you by any means i really would appreciate uh i really appreciate everyone who has become a patron or a member it is really incredibly helpful um i'm uh your your help and your confidence is really uh genuinely moving to me and um, I want to thank all of you and just everyone who participates here and is a viewer. You know, I know um, I, can, I can come on a little strong in how I phrase things sometimes. Um, I try my best to be just spicy enough <laughs> without crossing the line, but undoubtedly I feel that. So do forgive me if, if, if it's great to you. I know what it's like to just have a person who speaks in a way which is intensely grating even if you like what they have to say um so thank you all for for coming and participating and, and listening to these videos even when you don't agree uh in whole or in part um and please don't become a patron if you are not in a financially good situation if you still want to talk about something if there's something that's really troubling you that you think i could help email me at seraphimhamilton at gmail.com let me know you don't have the financial capacity to become a patron at tier three and by god's will if i think i can help you we can set up a time to talk one-on-one -on -one still okay so let's get right into the main subject of the video right after we say this word of prayer which i almost just forgot uh illumine our hearts and master love of mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge Open the eyes of our mind to understand the gospel teachings, and plant also in us to hear thy blessed commandments, trampling down our carnal sorrows, and enter upon a spiritual manner of living. Both thinking and doing things are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and thine all holy good and life creating spirit, both now and every the ages of ages. Amen. Okay, so after the flood, Noah issues a prophecy, and Noah prophesies that uh, God will enlarge 
Yapheth, and he will cause him to dwell in the tent of Shem. And when he blesses Shem, he blesses him in the name of the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, which means Shem is going to be the priestly line from whom comes the priestly nation, that's Abraham, and the priestly nation will build the central sanctuary. In the Old Covenant, which begins with the creation of the world, it's not just a kind of mosaic thing. The Old Covenant is the administration by which God manages the world and his relationship with mankind um, prior to the coming of Christ. And it has a noachic form, it has a mosaic form. But there's always a central sanctuary. Um, the central sanctuary at day one is the Garden of Eden. And uh, Cain and Abel offer their sacrifices at the Gate of Eden. After the flood, there's no garden. That, cent that central sanctuary is reestablished with the Mosaic period. That's why I think you have uh, Paul, his periodization of history is from Adam to Moses, sin or death reigned. And I think it has a lot to do with the sanctuary. I think it has a lot to do with the nature of the Sabbath and the reason that the Sabbath wasn't observed as a distinctive sign until the Mosaic period. That's not the main subject of the video. Um, tents, as we talked about, uh, that's sanctuary language. Noah is exalted into the likeness of God because he does the kinds of things that God did in Genesis 2. And following in Genesis 2, God planted a garden. In Genesis 9, Noah will plant a vineyard. In Genesis 1 and 2, God will rest in his house, which is the creation. In Genesis 9, Noah is going to rest by sleeping in his house. In Genesis 3, God issues curses. In Genesis 9, Noah issues blessings and curses. In Genesis 3, the curses which God issues are prophetic in nature, and he issues a prophetic blessing of the messianic seed, after which Eve is named mother of all living. Before she's Isha, woman, now she's Eve, mother of all living, which is a messianic title. God makes a promise to Eve, which is fulfilled in Mary, which is why Mary is a new Eve. Um, and in Genesis 9, it's Noah's word, which creates the history of the world that flows out from there. And the ultimate fulfillment of the uh, prophecy that Noah makes comes in the era of the church, because it's in the church that Hebrew prophecy and Hellenistic philosophy are harmonized in a rightly ordered relationship, such that the content of the prophetic word, the Logos of God, is articulated precisely and exactly in the language of metaphysics and the philosophical tradition. I think there is a... Um, ontological basis for the sanctification of philosophical theology in the New Covenant. Florovsky said that the use of reason in Christian theology is given its special role because the incarnate Word of God has joined himself not only to a truly human body, but also to a truly human mind. And in so doing, he has taken the human power of reasoning and he has united it to his own divine mind. And he has guaranteed its utility and its goodness in the life of the world. And what reason is really all about is it's the organization of things in their proper relation to each other, such that a dogma is a logical icon of the life of God. It is a created imprint of the uncreated. The uncreated can be known directly, and the created is a a unfolding, symbolically speaking, of what is known in the experience of the church. And that unfolding takes place in language, and language is all about context and interrelations and things like that. And that context, that grammar, is the grammar of symbolism. And so you see the theology of the seven councils is articulated with great precision 
because of the fathers' use of the tradition of classical metaphysics. But what is being articulated is fully in continuity with what God has revealed in Scripture. And I have just become absolutely convinced of the incredible divine coherence of tradition in Scripture, just to an unbelievable degree of precision. It's one of those things that um, it's very hard to articulate it concisely um, without just kind of giving example after example. But just as I have studied the tradition of the church and have studied the Bible, it's amazing to me the way that they roll together in such an elegant and beautiful and unexpected way. Just how a, a, an obscure purity law in Leviticus will shed light on some esoteric doctrine in Maximus the Confessor or, or, or Dionysius the Areopagite. Uh, it's extraordinary the unity which really is intrinsic to the content of Revelation, the apostolic deposit of faith. So what can we say about this beyond Genesis 9 and Paul's role as tent builder? Is there anything else in the Bible which gives us reason to think that this is a major thread? Well, in my last video and in the patron-only video, I give some examples of relations that Israel has with the nations to suggest the uh, uh, possible conduits or likely conduits through which Israel was an instrument in God's hand shaping the actual culture of the Gentile world. Um, but I want to look at some important biblical texts. The first one I want to look at is in Numbers chapter 24. Now, it's often said in biblical criticism that prophets did not have anything in their purview beyond the horizon of their lifetimes. And there's really nothing upon which this is based. It's just an assertion which is said, and then it's used as a, a framing device to exclude um, interpretations from Scripture which on their face are the most likely. Same thing with the resurrection of the dead, for example. All sorts of passages in the Psalms and Job which, which suggest they knew about the resurrection of the dead. Um, but since we all know that the resurrection of the dead wasn't known until very late, uh, then they can't have meant that. Um, but in Numbers 24, we have one of the four major poems of the Pentateuch. So as we've said before, uh, as I've said before, uh, John Salehammer has very astutely developed what he calls a compositional reading strategy for the Bible. That is, Moses and the prophets have structured their books in a uh, certain way such that we are directed to certain passages to tell us what the main themes of the whole story is. So Genesis 1 to 11 is a bunch of short narratives followed by very short poems. Okay, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman because you've taken out of man. It's a very short poem which follows a very short narrative. And that runs that way all the way down to Genesis 11. Well, Genesis 12 to 48 is a long narrative, and it ends with a long poem. And in that long poem, it tells you about the coming of the Messiah, because you got the seed from the line of Judah, to whom is the obedience of the nations. And his, uh, he is described in the language of Joseph. Uh, the dream from Joseph, your brother shall bow down to you. That's from Joseph's dream. And... What we're being told is that the messianic seed is going to be like Joseph, who first is rejected by his brothers, exalted over the nations, and then is revealed to his brothers, even though he is known in another form to them. They didn't realize it was uh, their brother, but they knew of his existence and his reign over Egypt. And then he's ultimately reconciled to his brothers, and then they reign in peace. Uh, well, then you have Genesis 50 down to Exodus 14, and you got Exodus 15. It's the second major poem. That's the Song at the Sea. And here you have the uh, line, the Lord will reign forever. So just as Genesis 49 is about the kingdom of the Messiah, well, here it's the Lord's kingdom. 
It is God who is reigning. He will plant Israel on his holy mountain. And on the holy mountain, you got the sanctuary, and the sanctuary is God's palace, and the palace is where a king lives. And then you go from Exodus chapter 16 down to Numbers chapter 22, and you got the other poem, Numbers 23 to 24. Numbers 23 is a celebration of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Numbers 24 takes all of that language and it uses it as a prophetic word about the Messiah, who is the personal embodiment of the nation, who recapitulates certain aspects of that nation's history, and who redeems the nation and extends its dominion to the ends of the earth. So, Numbers uh, 24, verse 7, Water shall flow from his buckets, this is talking about the Messiah, and his seed shall be in many waters. Well, the many waters, this is a reference to the Gentile nations of the world. Why is it his seed shall be in many waters? Because father of many nations are you called. How does Abraham become the father of many nations? Through the Messianic seed, we're being told. Uh, his king shall be higher than the Masoretic has Agag, but I think the Septuagint is right here. Higher than Gog, as in Gog, of, Gog and Magog. Gog is the king of Magog. Um, this goes back to Og, just a couple chapters earlier, and Og is uh, a being who seems to be a Nephilim or something like that. And remember, Nephilim is this divine being who has a body. There's that raises a whole host of issues, which we don't have time to discuss here. It is discussed in the um, uh, patron exclusive video. And his kingdom shall be exalted. In the same passage, we read that one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. That word is not a common word, but it is used of Adam in Genesis chapter 1. So we're being told that the Messianic seed is the last Adam figure. Uh, and we are told... Uh, let's find the exact passage. I behold him. I see him. It's talking about the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And it's just crushing the head of the serpent. And shall break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, this is a really interesting turn of phrase. Because here we have an explicit statement that the fulfillment of this prophecy is far off. But it goes further than that because the prophetic uh, calendar, as it were, provides three events in order which are going to mark the relative nearness of Israel's Messiah. Okay, so verse 20. He looked on Amalek, took up his discourse, said Amalek was the first among the nations. Its end is utter destruction. When is that fulfilled? It's fulfilled 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul destroys all the Amalekites, or almost all the Amalekites. It's a huge battle. Look at the numbers that are given us in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. I think these are the Hyksos, uh, who are the shepherd kings who rule over Egypt for four centuries. They're terribly brutal. I think they conquered it, Egypt after the Exodus. And that's why you find these kind of um, uh, 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 dispossessed Amalekites throughout Samuel, one of whom has an Egyptian slave. He's kind of little details or undesigned coincidences um, are suggestive of a particular shape to the revised chronology that I would support. Um, but we have first the destruction of the Amalekites. And then you have Ashur, that's Assyria, this is verse 22, shall take you away captive, speaking to certain Gentiles. Okay, so this is the rise of the Assyrian Empire. This is what happens in the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this is what destroys the northern kingdom. This is the second of the three major events, which is going to tell you of the approaching time of the Messiah. 
And then verse 23, uh, he took up his discourse that who shall live when God does this, but ship shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber. He too shall come to utter destruction. Okay, so this is event number three. Now, this passage right here is quoted in Daniel. It's quoted in Daniel chapter 11 because Daniel is closer to the coming of the Messiah and it is like you have the uh, telescope zooming in. Here we have a, we got three major events which are going to lead towards the relative nearness of the Messianic kingdom. Daniel is very interested, likewise, in the question of how near the Messianic kingdom is. That is why you have the 70 weeks in the book of Daniel. Daniel ends with the sealing up of the heavenly scroll because the time of the end is not near. And then in the book of Revelation, you've got the unsealing of that same scroll in chapter 10 by the same being that is the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Jesus, who is being described as angel of the Lord in Revelation because he's acting in his office as head of the old covenant. That's another issue, but Revelation 10 describes the angel of the Lord as a, theo as a theophany. It's taken from the language of Ezekiel 1 and elsewhere, which tells us this is in fact God who is acting here. Uh, but he unseals the scroll of Daniel, and just as Daniel sealed the scroll for time times half a time here, we see in Revelation 10 it says time no more, because the time of the end is in fact being realized in the uh, days of the Apostle John, where Jesus has been crowned as King of Kings, and as king of kings, he realizes the eschatological age. Eschaton is the word from which we get end in English. That's the word translated end. So in, in uh, the poems of the Pentateuch, you have in the days of the end or the latter days. Well, that is a relationship to the Hebrew word for beginning with which Genesis begins. That's analogous to the relationship of the word end to beginning in English. So beginning and end are paired words, even though they're not etymologically related. They're paired words in English. We always think of them together. It's the same thing in the Hebrew language with respect to these two words. So we've got in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the end, you have the uh, glorification of the heavens and the earth and the new heavens and new earth. You've got the messianic age going on, so on and so forth. Well, Ketim is mentioned right here, and we have that text opened up and zoomed in on in Daniel 11.30. Daniel 11.29, Time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. It shall not be this time as it was before. Ships of Kittim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw, turn back and be enraged, take action against the Holy Covenant. This is talking about some of the stuff the Antiochus Epiphanes does. And this is talking about the rise of the Roman Republic. Kittim is Rome. Uh, and this is the third of the three events which tells you of the approaching nearness of the Messianic Age. And Daniel is going to go on in the rest of that chapter to describe the imperial dominion of Augustus. And I agree with James Jordan that Daniel ends by discussing the uh, uh, fear of Herod, whereby he devotes many to destruction. Matthew records that. Uh, and then uh, Matt, or Daniel tells us that it's at this time that uh, the resurrection of the dead begins, which indeed it does. The resurrection of Jesus is the inaugural event of the end of the end. Now, the upshot of all of this is that there's a prophetic periodization of history. And the periodization of history that the prophets are writing about has as its goal the coming of the Messianic Age. So the idea of the latter days, which I've already mentioned, or the time of the end, is mentioned several times in Daniel. Daniel mentions um, the time of the end in chapter 11, uh, verse 
uh, 35, some of the wise shall stumble. This is talking about the end of the uh, crisis of Antiochus Epiphanes, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. I mean, this is contextually how we know that the rest of this passage is not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, because we're told here that that still awaits the appointed time. And then verse 36 and following is about the beginning of that appointed time. So the time of the end is something talked about throughout Daniel. And then in Daniel 2, it talks about the latter days. The four kingdoms which will lead to the messianic kingdom of God. Isaiah 2 talks about the nations gathering to Mount Zion in the latter days. Hosea chapter 3 talks about the latter days. Israel shall be regathered from its exile. That's what Jesus does. And the regathering of Israel from exile includes the gathering of the nations to the holy mountain on which they worship God. We see this in the prophets, not just in the New Testament. That's why in Isaiah 40 to 55, we see the very language that was used to describe the return of the Israelites from their exiles then applied to the nations because the point is that the identity of the nations in Abraham's family is as people who are adopted into that covenantal line of promise. Now, the periodization of history that the prophets spell out for us has a relationship to the division of the world into these three branches, Shemite, Yah. Um, Yaphethite and Hamite. So if you, it's interesting that when we think of the Orient and when we think of the West, what is the boundary between the Orient and the West? It seems to me that the uh, kind of unifying principle of, of our mental map of the world and its cultures is the mountains of Ararat. East of the mountains of Ararat, that's the Eastern world. We think of that as the East. And West of that, we think of it as the Western world. So if you take Noah, he has these three sons, and they have their children, and it develops into the kind of multiplication of the nations. Uh, you might think of the Shemites as going east, uh, and they're in Mesopotamia as well. There's Shemites in Mesopotamia, but I think the Orient is, is Shemite. That's my, my view. I think it's the best one, but there are those who disagree. And you think of the Hamites as going south, and then you think of the Ophethites of going north, and they also uh, migrate to India as well. So that's why you have the Indo-European languages. Um, but in Daniel 2... Uh, the prophet shows us the structure of world history as it approaches the coming of the Messianic Age. So Daniel 9 gives us the 490 years from the decree of Cyrus to the coming of Israel's Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed one of prince. And he's called anointed one here because what he's doing is he's doing the work of the high priest. High priest is the one who is anointed. Daniel 7 describes the high priest doing the day of atonement work. So this is the same figure that we read about in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man. He's the one who comes as Messiah, the Prince, or anointed one of Prince in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 2 gives us the political uh, shape of, that, of the uh, time until the coming of the Messiah. So you got these four kingdoms. The first one is Babylon. The second one is uh, Medo-Persia. The third one is the Greek kingdoms. And the fourth one is Rome. That's the natural interpretation. That's the interpretation that's uh, normative in Judaism, Christianity. Um, and it makes the most sense of the book. There's no separate median kingdom or anything like that. We know that because uh, in, in Daniel 5 and 6, or Daniel 6, rather, we hear, have the laws of the Medes and the Persians. One set of law for both people. Okay, so it's a joint kingdom. Daniel chapter 8 describes them as a goat, and the goat has two horns, one of which is higher than the other. So there's a preeminence of Persia in this joint Medo-Persian kingdom. So there's no separate Median kingdom. And the thing is, I mean, even in the Maccabean period, nobody thought that there was a separate Median kingdom. It's just an artifice of biblical criticism because it's very difficult to explain why there are four kingdoms here if, in fact, this is a forgery written before there ever was any such thing as a Roman Empire. Um, because 
the governing principle of the development of that theory is that prophecy is something to be uh, excluded from our range of explanatory models. Even if you don't believe that it's reality, that's methodologically what is often taken for granted. I think it's silly, but that's just the fact of, of the way that that system works. Um, so you have these four kingdoms here. And the four kingdoms are described in metals, which are the metals of the temple from the outside in. Okay. Top to bottom is outside in or, or inside out rather uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron. This begins with most holy. The Ark of the Covenant is covered with gold and it ends with least holy. Iron is outside the temple. And this is a kind of temple of space. This is the house in which Israel is dwelling until the stone cut without hands assimilates all of these pre-existing kingdoms. And that language refers to an altar, Exodus chapter 20, stone cut without hands. And an altar is a miniature holy mountain. Ezekiel actually calls the altar, a holy mountain, or the mountain of God. So it grows into a mountain which fills the whole earth. That's why in our divine liturgy, when we approach, or when the priest approaches the altar, the image you should have in your mind is of the people gathering around the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. Jesus says, flee to the mountains. Lot is told to flee to the mountain after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we find Abraham on that mountain, where Isaac is offered as an ascension offering. But the hinge on which biblical history turns in the Old Covenant is the exile and return. Because before the, or before the return from exile, you have Babylon, which is ruling. And Babylon is a predominantly Hamite kingdom. Uh, we see this fourfold Babylonian kingdom in Genesis 10 referred to uh, uh, under Nimrod. Babel, I think, is Babylon, whether or not the city and tower of Babel is the same city as Babylon or whether it was refounded, I don't know, but it certainly is um, connected ideologically in scripture and outside um, with Babylon. And we find Shinar, which is mentioned in Genesis 11 as the site for the tower of Babel or Babylon. That's mentioned in the book of Daniel as well as the context for the uh, narratives which take place in Babylon. Well, at the return from exile, the world is reborn. It's a Japhethite world. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, these are all Japhethites. And so the center of gravity in the world shifts at this point in time as history marches forward to the coming of the Messianic kingdom. Ezekiel also mentions this. You have lots and lots of specific nations that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. In the battle of Gog and Magog, and remember, Gog is the king of Magog, and Ezekiel says that Gog was prophesied about in the former days. That's one reason I think the Septuagint and these other texts are correct in talking about his king being higher than Gog rather than Agag, as it has in the Masoretic. Uh, Agag is king of the Amalekites. But um, you have these seven nations which are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 to 39. And they're oriented in a circle. And they are those who are conquered by 
the redeemed and glorified Israel. And there are seven nations which are conquered by um, Israel when they go into the land of Canaan. And that conquest is itself an image of conversion. And that's not just an image which is there in the New Testament, but it's actually there in the book of Joshua as well. Harem devoted the Canaanites who are in rebellion, they are devoted to destruction. But take the Gibeonites as an example. There's a lot of issues with this text that, that we would have to go into if we were going to do a blow, blah, blah, exegesis. But the Gibeonites, they also are devoted because they are made servants of God's tabernacle. They are consecrated. Well, that's what happens in baptism. In baptism, we're put to death and resurrected again so that we become holy, holy to the Lord. We're consecrated to the service of God. Chrismation, which is included in the service of baptism, is anointed an anointing into the priesthood of the laity. And the image of seven in relation to the ingathering and conversion of the nations by which the Messiah exercises dominion over the whole world, as Numbers 24 said. It's there in Exodus chapter 2. I think it's chapter 2 as well. Exodus chapter 2, Moses goes into Midian. And remember, he saves these seven women who are the daughters of Jethro. Jethro is a righteous Gentile. Moses marries one of these seven women. But insofar as he acts as guardian for the seven, spiritually speaking, he's bridegroom to these seven women representing the seven nations. In Isaiah chapter uh, 4, we have another image that resembles this. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name, take away our reproach. What does it mean to be called by your name? Well, then as now, your family name is the name by which you're designated as heir to a particular estate. And in context here, this is about the Messiah. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. This is like the branch of David, Jeremiah 23, the root from the stump of Jesse or shall bear fruit. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. It's Isaiah chapter 11. This is a messianic title. Beautiful and glorious. That's title. That's language, which is about the priesthood. God creates robes of glory and beauty. Um, and these seven women correspond to Isaiah 11 when we have the regathering of the nation from its exile and there are seven specific nations which are designated. And in fact, the phraseology which is used here in Isaiah 4 resembles phraseology which is used in the book of Zechariah where it says 10 men shall grab hold of a Judahite or a Jew because we have heard that God is with you. And the number 10 is quite interesting because that's the number of the 10 tribes. And the 10 tribes are associated with Joseph, whose uh, heir is Ephraim. Remember, Joseph has a double portion. So Judah has one right of the firstborn son and Joseph has the other right of firstborn son. That's how it's divided up. Uh, Joseph gets a double portion. So he has two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Judah is, has the right of inheritance and rule. So the northern kingdom gets called Ephraim because of its relationship with Joseph, just as the southern kingdom is called Judah because of its relationship with Judah. Well, just as Genesis 49 says that Joseph is a vine which grows over the walls, the ten northern tribes are associated with the Gentiles as they're gathered into the regathered nation. In Jeremiah 3, we read that the uh, whole city of God will be filled with the presence such that they have no more need for the Ark of the Covenant. 
and all nations will be gathered to it. But a friend of mine recently pointed out to me that Jeremiah 3 describes this happening first through the regathering of the northern kingdom, which is associated with the gathering of the nations. And then through that, the Judahites are also gathered, which is the history that Paul sets forth in Romans 9 to 11. Remnant of Israel flowers forth, gives life to the nations, which provokes the Jews' jealousy so that all will be converted in the relationship within the human family. The rifts that have grown up within the family will be finally healed. And finally, on the relationship of seven to the Gentiles. At bottom, this probably goes back to the 70 nations of Genesis 10, which appear in Exodus 15 as 70 palm trees watered by 12 springs. Jesus, in the Gospels, he feeds 5,000, and those are Jews, those are Israelites. And then he feeds 4,000, who are Gentiles, this is in a Gentile territory. And it comes right after he has this dialogue with the Canaanite women, says, let us eat uh, even dogs eat bread from the master's table. And Jesus says, blessed are you. And then he goes and he feeds a bunch of Gentiles. Well, he asked the disciples, how many baskets were left over when I fed the 5,000? 12. How many baskets were left over when I fed the 4,000? Seven. And then he says, do you still not understand? Which is one reason I say that this symbolic meaning in scripture is something God expects us to understand. It's not something which we have to be explicitly told about in every case because Jesus expected his disciples to, to know what this meant without having to be told about it. But the meaning and significance of it is in the relationship of number seven to the nations. Seven nations. And so the battle of Gog and Magog, this is the transference of the inheritance of the nations from the city of man, Gog, who's linked with Og, who's a Nephilim, who's obviously thus linked with the serpent or the devil, to the kingdom of God. Conquest is a death and resurrection experience whereby we come to be possessed by the Lord in the sense that the Lord possesses the land. In Isaiah 54, we read this after the work of the suffering servant that uh, you speaking to Israel, will spread abroad to the right to the left. Your seed will possess the nations, people desolate cities. Isaiah 14, the Gentile nations are described as being taken as male and female servants or slaves, but the range of meaning that's included within the concept of the Hebrew word translated slave or servant is broader than what we mean by it. Because number one, it includes both what we would call servant and what we would call slave. Number two, in Exodus 21, if you're a slave in your sabbatical year when you're meant to be released as an Israelite slave, you can become part of the family. You have your ear opened up because it's a circumcision of the ear. Your ear is opened up to hear the voice of the master and you're joined to his household. Just like Eliezer of Damascus was the heir of the household of Abram before he had Isaac. Well, in uh, uh, Exodus 21... This is how someone from outside the family can be adopted as son of the head of the household. So when we hear about this in terms of Israel's conquest of the world, we should understand that there's conceptual flexibility here, which includes an element of blessing as well as an element of curse. And that's true across the board. So when God uh, bathes the world in fire, that can glorify people and it can also burn them to pieces. God bathes the world in water. It can be a baptism unto life or it can be a baptism unto death. 
You can be like Noah and be exalted to the top of Mount Ararat, or you can be like those outside who were drowned in the sea. And it's the same thing is true in terms of being uh, attached to the nation as servants or slaves. That can mean sonship or it can mean straight servitude. In the immediate context of Ezekiel and his prophetic world is the birth of this Yaphethite universe that comes about through the spiritual reverberations of the return from Babylon. As Israel is the center of the world, as God remolds Israel, so also is the world remolded, not only because of the visible political effects that this has, but also I think just because of the spiritual heartbeat of the world. The world is wired in ways uh, that mean causality extends far, far deeper and subtler levels than we have in our immediate kind of interpretive toolkit. But in Ezekiel, we read that the world is being put to sleep, and when it wakes up, it's going to be ruled by Yaphethites, or Japhethites. I always pronounce it Yah. Um, I just find it easier to say. Now, one more text from the Old Testament, and then we'll talk about some stuff from the New Testament and finish up. This is the most explicit text in terms of the ones I'm going to discuss, and I think in terms of the whole Hebrew Bible, about this specific thread. Zechariah 9, as I spoke about in my video on the divine identity of the Messiah, you have the promise that the Messiah is going to come to the singing and rejoicing of daughter Zion, or the daughter of Zion. In Zechariah 2, we're told that the God of Israel will come and dwell with his people, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. Well, in Zechariah 9, that very same language is used, except it's used of the Messiah. And then we're told that the Messiah, his dominion, shall extend from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, that's an allusion to Genesis 15, where the dominion promised to Abraham will extend from one river to another. Here, it's from one river to the end of the earth. We see there's an expansion. The God of the whole earth, as he called us, Isaiah 54. We quoted part of that passage earlier, just now. Um... And when we read that the Messiah will come on a donkey, number one, that word donkey, it's almost identical to the word for like matter, the stuff of the world. So I think there's a, a, a wordplay or a pun being made on the notion of the incarnation. How is it that God comes to dwell in his sanctuary in the person of Israel's Messiah? Well, he comes riding on the stuff of the world. He joins himself to a body and in so doing imbues life to the world in that body. And that makes sense of the images of conquest that we read about here. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord, we're told in Zechariah chapter 2. Well, here's how it's described in Zechariah 9. And I want you to note the way that the image of conquest is being played on here. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, as a quotation from Exodus chapter 24, Moses sprinkles the blood of the covenant on the people. Jesus quotes that in the Eucharist. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, prisoners of hope. 
I declare I will restore to you double. I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made a friend my arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. There you go. That's what the passage I want you to focus on. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Well, how is this war going to happen? Because God has just said that he's going to make war against war. This is the big point in 1 Samuel 8. People take 1 Samuel 8 as an anti-monarchical text. It's not. God said that Israel could crown themselves a king when the land had attained its rest. And what that means, if you know the way that the Bible speaks, it means that when they've conquered all of the land, because they are meant to conquer it with the Ark of the Covenant going before them, God is going to be the one who gives the whole nation the power to conquer the land. And only then will they crown a king. But they wanted to crown a king so that the king could do that for them. And what that means is that the identity of the king is legitimated through bloodshed and through conquest. And that leads to a situation where the kings are always engaged in warfare. King David is plagued by civil war. King Solomon, though his reign is mostly peaceful, he engages in the international arms trade. And those arms he sells in the nations, it circles back to bite him. Because those nations will rise up against the kingdom of Israel. And then the kingdom splits. Rehoboam and Jeroboam have war all their days. And there's this constant warfare because of the attempt to crown the king too early. Well, the messianic king, he makes war against war. And that tells us the way that we should be interpreting the language of the war of the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. Jesus uses a lot of this language, by the way, in Matthew 24. Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. Lord God will sound the trumpet and march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Well, we've heard earlier in the book that Israel is the four winds of heaven. They've been spread abroad as the four winds of heaven. In the book of Daniel, the four kingdoms, I think we mentioned this in my last video, are stirred up by the winds of heaven because it's the spiritual and political influence of the Israelites who have been spread abroad that creates this new political cosmos. Lord of hosts will protect them. Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. It's a different kind of army. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. I think there's a possible allusion here, actually, to Genesis 9 that just came into my mind. I'm not sure about it yet. It's something I have to think about. The uh, drinking of wine in the context of mentioning Zion and Greece. It's suggestive of, of perhaps an echo of Genesis 9, where, you, of course, you've got Noah who drinks wine in his sabbatical rest, and then he issues a blessing and a curse on Shem and Japheth and then uh, Canaan, respectively. On that day, Lord... Their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. How great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, grain shall make the young men flourish, new wine the young women. The jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Okay, so I want you to read that in the context of what we read earlier in Zechariah 6. Zechariah 6, we read uh, these words. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, set it on the head of Joshua. The name Jesus, Yehoshua, shortened in Yeshua. Yehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. He shall branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Okay, branch, that's the title for the Messiah. No question, Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 11. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
When it says the council of peace shall be between their both, the best explanation is that it's peace between God and the nation through the messianic branch who's both priest and king. So the crown here, made out of the silver and gold, placed on the head of Jehoshadak the high or Joshua, son of Jehoshadak the high priest, and then Zechariah chapter 9, you have the crown mentioned again. They, on that day, the Lord their God will say to them, as flock of his people, jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Okay. This is united in terms of Haggai. The minor prophets are a single integrated book. They're a 12-fold book, but it's one book. There's a set of common themes, there's a common structure, common threads, and common language. So here we've heard about silver and gold, we've heard about a crown, we've heard about peace. The same thing is spoken of in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 is about the coming of Jesus into the second temple, where Jesus will make peace, and he will make peace ultimately through the Eucharist, uh, because Jesus goes into the temple, the personal visitation of the God of Israel to his people. Jesus says, you miss the day of your visitation. It's a term for visit of God with his people. And then he departed from that temple, and the evangelists um, make that very clear. He left the temple. So this is like God leaving the temple in Ezekiel. But then he goes to the upper room, and just as he turned over a table in the Jewish temple, he sets a table in the upper room, and it's the upper room. Remember how always in sanctuaries, inward is upward, the Holy of Holies is the innermost portion, and that symbolizes the heaven of heavens, the uppermost portion. Heaven of heavens, holy of holies. Well, the upper room is a sign of that. That's why, by tradition, Pentecost happens in the upper room. That's where the glory of God fills it. Well, in Haggai, we read this. Haggai 2, verse 7. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in. Remember how we talked about despoiling the Egyptians? That's a common image that people use. So Israel, they go out from Egypt and they receive the wealth of the Egyptians and they use that wealth to build the sanctuary and to build up their own culture. Well, that's connected to the use of Hellenistic philosophy by the church in a more direct way than I think most people realize. Because here we have this very image, the idea that the nations are shaken so that the treasures of the nations become the inheritance of the people of God. And you have to remember, we talk about despoiling the Egyptians. It's not as if every Egyptian was cursed. There were undoubtedly lots of Egyptians who could see <laughs> the way the wind was blowing. And joined up with that mixed multitude and left with Israel. And they were circumcised with the rest of the Israelites. So despoiling the Egyptians doesn't just mean taking the wealth of the Egyptians and leaving them there. There were undoubtedly Egyptians who came with and were blessed. Just as Caleb was a Gentile, even though he was also a Judahite. Caleb the Kenizzite. I will shake all nations, the treasures of nations to come in. I will fill this house with glory. Compare Exodus 40, 1 Kings 8. This is the presence of God that fills this house. Says the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of house, hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place shall give peace. Okay, so we've got silver and gold, silver and gold from the nations, and that's what makes the crown, which we read about in the next book in the 12, which is Zechariah, which we just quoted. 
And in this place I will give peace. In what place? In the temple. Well, just like the council of peace shall be between God and Israel through the Messiah, who is represented by Jesus or Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 6. That's the context for Zechariah chapter 9. So when we read about jewels of a crown shining on the head by implication of the messianic king. We should understand this to mean that he is despoiled in a positive sense. Those nations which he has been, which have been conquered. Earlier in Zechariah 9, we read of the conquest of all of these Philistine cities. So why, why Philistine cities? A couple of reasons. Um, David is the great Philistine conqueror. It's because David is a new Moses and the Philistines, Genesis 10, 13, Philistines are related to the Egyptians. And so there's a symbolic spiritual association created there as well as a concrete literal one. And as, as always, the sim, the symbolic is, is, um, dependent on the literal and the literal is therefore the symbolic. So it's not, they're not next to each other. They exist because of each other. So when David conquers the Philistines, he despoils the Philistines and the wealth of the Philistines goes to build the tabernacle of David on Mount Zion and the temple of Solomon on Mount Moriah. It's because the Philistines are associated with the Egyptians. Well, so also here, the tabernacle of Moses is to the temple of Solomon what the old covenant is to the new covenant. So there's lots of kind of dyadic relationships like this, which spiritually correspond to this dyad of old and new covenants. So take the first giving of the law in Exodus 20, and then you got the renewal of the covenant in Exodus 34. That's a spiritual representation of the Old and New Covenants. That's what Paul reads it as, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. But then you can expand it outwards. You have the first giving of the law in Sinai, but then you have the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. Same principle. So the invocation of Philistine cities here links... The conquering king who conquers by peace. He makes war against war and so wins the war. It links him with David and the sanctuary or the uh, wealth of the nations, as Haggai says, glorifies the sanctuary which is built by the priestly Messiah. That's why we have the language of a crown. That's why we have the language of silver and gold. That's why it's all associated with the priestly king who is the Messiah and who is the one in whom the God of Israel comes personally to meet his people. That's Jesus the Nazarene. And remember Nazarene, as Matthew says, the prophets say he will be called a Nazarene because uh, Netzer, branch. This is kind of a divine pun, which is threaded history. That the Messiah comes from a little town, meaning Branchville, as it were. So we have the specific reference of the sons of Zion and the sons of Greece. And the sons of Zion despoil the sons of Greece. Meaning, they take the inheritance, the possession of the Hellenistic world, and they use it in service of the sanctuary of God. Now, I'll mention one typological connection that uh, one of my godchildren actually mentioned to me several years ago. Um, I think one thing we have to keep in mind about the Hellenistic philosophers is that they are not identical to the rest of the Hellenistic world. Okay, we, we have this kind of, or some people have this assumption that Athenian culture is the 
worldview of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But actually, you know, Socrates talks about the supreme god. There's a gentleman on Facebook um, who wrote a really fascinating series of posts on this, and I meant to interview him for a while, just on the real Socrates. And, um, you know, Socrates talks about God. And when he uh, rejects the Greek gods, he's not rejecting it in favor of atheism, which is, if not stated explicitly, often the implication that we read. And by the way, the, the, the idea that, you know, it was just political stuff and it had nothing to do with religion, that, that's an anachronism. That's, a, in, in my opinion, it's quite silly. No, it certainly was about what we would call religious issues. And for that reason, it was about political issues. Well, Socrates is rejecting them in favor of God. And I don't think that Plato took the forms to be kind of a third realm. I think that the Neoplatonic interpretation, broadly speaking, of Plato as seeing the forms as ideas in the mind of the Supreme God is basically the correct one. Well, you have this threefold series of philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And then Aristotle's the tutor to Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great spreads the culture of the Hellenistic world across the known world. And that is what creates the situation into which our Lord enters and into which Paul ministers. So this is kind of a shadow of the three major patriarchs of the book of Genesis, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Isaac is, is included within the literary section of Jacob, and the three major characters whom the narrative focuses on are Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, but it's kind of a shadow of Abraham, Jacob, jo uh, Joseph, who tutors Pharaoh and who then feeds the known world with bread. Interesting suggestion from, from um, my, uh, uh, my godson, Sponsi. Well, then in the New Testament, as undoubtedly you've heard me mention more times than you want to hear in a whole lifetime, it's the Apostle Paul who has a special role as tent builder. Paul wrote, writes a huge amount of the New Testament. And I mean, that's an obvious fact, but it's something we should, you know, he's unique in certain ways. He's not one of the twelve. He is the last of the apostles, that's what he says. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says he's the last of the apostles, he says that in a context where there's a series of important lasts. There's the last Adam. There's the last enemy, which is death. There's the last trumpet. Remember, we heard, heard about a trumpet in Zechariah 9. I think Paul was alluding to Jesus' words, Matthew 24, which in turn alluded to Zechariah 9. So when Paul says, last of all, was to one born out of due time, he appeared to me. I think we should take that to be theologically significant in this series of lasts. Paul also understands his vocation in a very distinctive way. I think it might have been in this video, it might have been in the other video that I'm going to make patron exclusive, um, that uh, Paul quotes 1 Kings 19 about Elijah, because Paul talks about how he goes into kind of a spiritual exile for a few years to grow in his understanding of the revelation of God, and he returns with a mission. And N.T. Wright, I think, is correct in saying that Paul, in a sense, invents the discipline and practice of Christian theology. Not that he invents the content of Christian theology, but the practice of theologizing, of scripture-based, um, systematic reflection on God, 
man and God's purposes through man for the world. And Paul speaks of being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator, being transformed by the renewal of our minds, the mystery which was hidden for ages and generations but is now revealed in Christ. The revelation of that mystery is a turning point in world history. And Paul sees his own mission as being a unique instrument in the hand of God for the disclosure of that mystery in this kind of rigorous, I think, intellectually and philosophically robust way. You know, Seneca, one of the leading intellectuals of the day, by tradition, corresponded with the Apostle Paul. We actually have those letters. And it's at this point people say, Seraphim, what a buffoon you are. Don't you know that those are forgeries? But actually, someone, a friend of mine on Facebook pointed out, I never really thought about the question, but first of all, these letters are mentioned quite early. And as far as I know, they've been taken for granted as authentic for Christian history. But go, go and read the letters of Paul and Seneca. They're incredibly mundane and boring. Like, they have nothing ideological about just say, Hey man, what's up? How you doing? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm cool. How about you? If you were going to forge correspondence between Paul and Seneca, you think you would forge something that's actually interesting? No, this is... So, yeah, I'm, I'm of the opinion at this point that, that this is authentic. Um, I see no reason to doubt that tradition at all, and plenty of reason to think that it's true. Point though is that Paul is 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 fully engaged in a robust way, whether or not you agree with that or not, in the intellectual business of the day. So when Paul is said to be the tent builder by profession, this goes back, yes, to the prophetic image of the tent of Shem, into which Yahweh is going to dwell. And it goes back to the image of Jesus as the tecton. Okay, tecton means craftsman. That, inc that incorporates, of course, carpentry. And of course, Jesus is the eternal wisdom of God. And wisdom is the master craftsman, right? It's like he's a carpenter because Noah is a carpenter. He's the one who measures things out exactly and precisely. So the profession of Jesus and the apostles is symbolically resonant. And Paul like his master, builds up the sanctuary after the image of his master. He plants and waters and God gives the growth. In the image of the, uh, uh, the tent being built, in the context of the book of Acts, it has resonances with the text that James quotes in Acts chapter 15. I'm going to have a video on pretty soon, probably within the week, on um, the notion of church councils within tradition and the authority of church councils. And I'm going to argue that Acts chapter 15 has very wide-ranging implications, and there's a lot more here than I've seen recognized. Some really exciting stuff, at least in my opinion. Um, well, James quotes uh, uh, the end of the book of Amos. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And then in verse 17, continuing to quote Amos, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Okay, so in the Hebrew text, it's the remnant of Edom, but Edom, and Ad Edom is a spiritual image of fallen and mortal man. So the translators of the Septuagint 
interpreted this symbolism for their Gentile audience. That was part of what they saw as the work of translation. So I think originally the prophet writes Edom, but it means remnant of mankind. And that's why the book of Obadiah is about the dominion over Edom or Esau by uh, the kingdom of the Lord it says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And in fact, all of that is a prophetic expansion on Numbers 24, which talks about the possession of Edom by the Messianic king. So there's a lot of very deep roots here, biblically speaking. The tent of David, which is mentioned here, refers to this unique sanctuary on Mount Zion. Mount Zion only has one sanctuary on it, and it's not the temple. In 2 Samuel 6, David carries the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion, and it sits there without a veil, and David sits before it, and David arranges this Levitical orchestra around Mount Zion. And one thing that's unique about this sanctuary is the unprecedented before or after until the New Covenant participation of Gentiles in its life. And so when James quotes the uh, this text about the restoration of the booth of David, the tent of David, in the very book where we hear that Paul is a tent builder, this has very deep spiritual, prophetic, and symbolic implications. Well, I think this really explains why Paul is spoken of, or he speaks of himself rather, not only is he who reconciles, this is a point I learned from James Jordan. James Jordan would radically disagree with my, you know, pro-Hellenistic conclusions, but he's just dead wrong on this. Um, now, when Paul says that he reconciles Jews and Greeks, he's not, he's saying something more specific than reconciling Jews and Gentiles. Well, why does he say Jew and Greek? We can just say, oh, well, he, he it was just, uh, you know, there's no meaning to it, but I don't buy that. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath, as Jordan would say. And I think it's because there's this very specific purpose in God's providence for the rise of Hellenistic culture and it's being brought as, um, uh, as spoils and treasure for the kingdom of God in the church. And we see evidence of this in Paul's epistles. And Paul speaks of the elements of the world, the stoicheia. I mean, this is a technical term in Hellenistic philosophy about um, uh, the kind of building blocks of the creation. And what Paul says about the unification of Jew and Gentile in Christ is predicated on this ontological argument about, not the ontological argument for God's existence, but an ontological argument about what God, God has done in Christ for the world. Christ, in joining himself to the world as eternal God, has changed the inner wiring of the world so that it has all these downstream implications for how we are to relate to each other and how we're to relate to the Pentateuch. If you look at Jewish messianic tradition, this idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to radically change the wiring of the world because he's going to destroy what the serpent brought on the world uh, and uh, restore the world and take it beyond what it was supposed to be before the fall of Adam. You look at Haim Lazado, the way of God. What he says about this is, is extraordinary. He says that in Adam's fall, the body became subservient or the... Um, the soul became subservient to the body, whereas it was meant to be the other way around. And God has created the world so that it will receive life through the human body, which receives life through the human soul, which receives life from God. 
but in the fall, all of that is inverted. But when the Messiah comes, God will bring back what was meant to be at the beginning, and we will take it beyond that. And this is even associated with the defeat of the serpent. You go to inner.org, it's a Jewish website, and you'll find this, uh, this gentleman, one of the leading rabbinic authorities in Jerusalem, from a Hasidic perspective, he'll talk about the serpent as the devil. I mean, this, this idea that this is a Christian invention is just not true. But that's why you see Paul doing things like quoting the Hellenistic poets. And we know, historically speaking, that Tarsus was a major hub of Hellenistic tradition and philosophy and conversation. And so why shouldn't we think that Plato read Moses? There's nothing implausible about that. Because there are Greco-Roman authors who refer to Moses. I mean, they know who, who the Jews are, and they... they those who are interested in, in philosophical issues are acquainted to some degree with Jewish scriptures. So why can't Plato have read Moses? There are some arguments that, that Plato in the Timaeus alludes to Genesis. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, most certainly echoes Ion. In one of my Greek classes, we were translating Plato's Ion, and I was blown away by how he describes the varying gifts of the muses. Because it's exactly what Paul says about the spirit and the gifts of the spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. It's Paul is echoing um, Plato there. So Paul is uniting these two traditions. Not as if they're one-to-one -one equivalent or of equal standing. Just as the human will of Christ is unified in subjection to his divine will so that all human beings will be subjected to God through the will of God in Christ. So also is the Hellenistic tradition brought into a, um, sub, uh, it's subjected to the revelation of God in the Bible and in Christ in its being harmonized with that revelation. But it nevertheless has made an important contribution that it was always intended to make. And there's a very important thread in biblical prophecy about precisely this. So in Daniel, you have the image of these four successive kingdoms, three of which are Japhethite kingdoms. And they're assimilated into the kingdom of God, which is the stone cut without hands. And so when you get down to the fourth century, you see precisely this, the emperor of Rome bending the knee to the God of heaven. And whereas the first Rome was founded on the blood of the brother, the second Rome, New Rome, which is what the city is called, is refounded precisely three centuries after the resurrection of Jesus, 330 AD. New Rome is founded with the church of the 12 apostles at the center with the relics of their martyrdom. That is the blood on which this city is founded. And it's exactly 333 years after the resurrection of Jesus that the church's inheritance or the acquisition of the Roman Empire as a vassal state of the kingdom of Christ is completed. Because Julian the Apostate fails with finality in the years 363. 
So 333 years. Pretty cool. And that's the political cosmos that is created. The Seventh Ecumenical Council refers to the kind of order of the world as this dyad of church and state and the ecclesiastical hierarchy and political hierarchy. You have the senior hierarch being the Pope of Old Rome and the uh, political hierarch being the Emperor of New Rome. And there is a certain preeminence which both of these figures have relative to the civil magistrate and the ecclesiastical hierarchy, respectively. And the state, the civil magistrate, is not secular in the sense that we think about it. That's why coronation is a kind of sacrament. A person is brought into kingship by the kingdom of God. It is something which happens in a liturgical setting because that is where the messianic feast is realized. And so you have seven councils which are manifestations and extensions of the heavenly court, the heavenly council, among whom the spirit blows to give wisdom and knowledge. And these seven councils are convoked by the God-beloved emperor who has this distinctive role in the political cosmos that God has created going all the way back to Noah. So that's the argument that I've made. Um, I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, this is indeed the second and last video in the series. Uh, there's kind of an alternative take uh, of this video, which is for patrons exclusively, but it's, it, it's a very different discussion. Um, anyway, I hope to see you guys soon.